in studio. Shani, thank you very much for joining me, my brother. I really appreciate you coming through. Thanks for having me, Aubrey. So you were quite a bad boy. Uh, yeah, as well, a light was. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Take, take me back because um, I, I was, uh, you know, reading some of the experiences that you've gone through. Yeah. You, you, you developed a reputation. You developed an, an addiction to certain lifestyle, uh, lifestyle issues. Uh, and you were a little bit of a problem child when you were so young. I was. Yeah? I was quite wild in my youth. Yeah. I'd like to think of myself as having more of an adventurous spirit. Yeah. But I, I did get involved in drugs and started experimenting with marijuana. Yeah. Which led me to actually dealing in drugs and trying other harder drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And um, which basically escalated out of control and eventually led me to go into prison. Yeah. I mean, I, I read somewhere on uh, your on your memoirs, somebody saying that he, he didn't fall in with the bad crowd. He was the bad <laughs> crowd. So, Shani Krebs uh, endured a tough childhood, born to a family of Hungarian refugees. He grew up in a succession of dreary mining towns and spent his teenage years in an orphanage. As a rebellious young conscript, he started dabbling in drugs, and it wasn't long before he was supplying the Joburg party scene with marijuana, LSD, mandrax, and cocaine. It was a wild life filled with girlfriends, narrow escapes, and drug binges. His closest friend was his pistol. Yeah? That's would that, correct. Would that, would that be a, a fair description of your youth? Um, to an extent, yeah. So, I mean, it is a little bit... Uh Colored up, a bit, yeah. you know, to sell the book. Yeah. But um, I was on the streets, and yes, I was dealing drugs, and um, the party life was just incredible at that in those years. You know? what, 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 just give me the time period. What are we talking? So about? we're talking about from the late seventies yeah. to early nineties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's right through the eighties, basically. Sure, sure. And you, yeah. le- you, you, you went to 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 do your national service in the army. Oh, that's correct. And that's uh, and did you then start getting even more involved there with? Yeah, so I met up with a group of guys. We all were, were so of similar minds, and yeah. uh, we're all dabbling in marijuana. Yeah, we didn't actually want to be in the army, yeah. and um, we joined the band and got out of going to fight on the border. Yeah. And uh, one thing led to another that eventually I went on AOL. I didn't want to go back. Yeah. And I was also dealing drugs then, going to Durban, picking up a stash, bring it to Joburg, taking it to the clubs. But eventually I got caught. Uh, the MPs came to fetch me and I was thrown into what was then Army Prison DB. Yeah. Um, but I was discharged, discharged early from the Army and never went back again. Yeah, yeah. I- I listen to the conversation, the, yeah. the, the conversation these days about the drug scene. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I suppose there's a lot of truth in the way that that conversation goes. You know, people will uh, usually say that uh, it is a certain group of people from a particular African country who yeah. are specifically um, uh, responsible for fueling the drug scene uh, in the country, and and I suppose that there, there yeah. is a measure of truth in that situation. But if I hear your story, that even back in the seventies, the, the late seventies, eighties, that the drug scene and the drug dealing scene was was alive and well then. Yeah, for sure. We had uh, all sorts of nationalities bringing drugs. Yeah, from Russians to Israelis to South Americans. Yeah. So it wasn't so much of the 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 group of people that you're referring yeah, to, you know. Yeah. There there were some of them, sure. 
but it was it was uh, all nationalities sure, basically. Sure. No, no. The reason why I'm raising it, uh, uh, but it's become a bit worse now. Sure. Yeah, no, of course, so. of course. And that's why I say that yeah. uh, that uh, when that conversation starts, it always it always becomes about that particular group, yeah. uh, that so nationality. Stigmatized. Sure. As, uh, but what, but what I'm observe, observing about yeah. your life history is that this thing has been going on for some time. Exactly. It's been here, it's uh, been around. It's, it's been, yeah, it's been in America. It's uh, all universal. It's a universal problem. But it seems to be worse today. I'm quite far removed from the drug scene yeah, today. Yeah. I'm, I'm 23 years clean, so yeah, yeah. drug-free. So yeah. I, I don't know much about it, sure. but obviously even where I was in Thailand yeah. and there were uh, a lot of those guys with me yeah who were there for, for drug trafficking yeah, as well. Yeah. Talk to me about that time, though. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued about that time, late 70s, early 80s, mid-80s, all the way to yeah. the 90s, about the, uh, the, the, the crime scene of that time. Uh, give me a sense. Give me a, a description. I'll tell you why I'm asking yeah. the question. South Africa was so deeply divided yeah. because of apartheid, right? That's correct. Um, and uh, those of us who lived in the townships had a particular experience of crime and, yeah. and so forth. But it appears to me that the internationalness of crime yeah. was already here. Um, that we were a, a favored destination for criminals and there was a very healthy criminal sector in this country. It was growing. So it wasn't so much in certain areas yeah. like you said the townships yeah you, the guys there were subjected to, to i mean to this, it's to more the operation, a, yeah. a, a street life you know yeah. there was a lot more poverty so often desperation leads people to committing crime yeah whereas i would say in areas like hillbra or yeovil i mean there were incidences sporadic incidences yeah. but nothing like on the level as today yeah yeah i mean in those days we they weren't uh, security companies patrolling the streets you didn't have all these half uh, electric fences and, yeah. and high walls yeah so yeah. it was a, it was a lot safer in those days yeah. than it is today yeah also with the influx of criminals yeah so so it's it's very different yeah. to what it was yeah. 30 years yeah. ago yeah. And, and and did you belong to a gang did you was there some sort of organizedness in your criminal activities at the time so we, we had sort of a gang, but um, we were like childhood friends. Yeah. And we grew up smoking weed together and eventually dealing. Yeah. So we weren't like a hardcore underworld drug syndicate, so to speak. Yeah. You know? So yeah. Um, it was very different then um, to today. Not not uh, as sophisticated perhaps as it yeah, is these no, days. Def yeah, definitely not. It's, yeah. it's uh, become quite a big racket. But you, 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 somebody says that your best friend at that time would have been your pistol. T tell me about that relationship. Yeah, Why? So, so I had to have a 38. I mean, I ran around with a gun. I had a pump shotgun. Yeah. So mainly dealing as well. You know, when, when guys wouldn't pay their debts, we'd go and scare them and yeah. get money out of them. But it wasn't to commit actual crime. Yeah. You know, it's just basically for protection. Yeah. There were guys who would try to rob your stash and things like that. Yeah. And there was some friction with certain sects. Yeah. Like the guys in Hillbrother and you had the guys in the Grove, the Lebanese. Yeah. You had the Jews from the north. Yeah. You had the Portuguese, you had the Greeks. 
Guns were always like a last resort, you know. But, so, but they were used sometimes. Yeah, so I mean, also the business I was involved in, besides the drug dealing, I was involved in clothing. Uh, I used to go into the townships. I had a lot of my clients in there. Yeah. So to, And I was carrying a lot of cash and clothing. Yeah, yeah. So it was just basically to make sure I wasn't robbed. Yeah, yeah. So you ended up in, in the army. You got kicked out, dishonorably discharged, no? No, no? no, no. I sort of got an early discharge yeah. because I had a motorbike accident. So yeah. okay. I ended up in hospital, you know, so that's why. But I never, ever went back to do camps or anything. So. How, did, how did you land up in jail, in a Thai, uh, Thai jail <laughs> in Thailand? I always knew I'd go to prison for some reason, you know. Being, well, you're having a naughty grown boy, up bro. on the streets, dealing yeah. drugs. Eventually, I agreed to smuggle drugs from Thailand to, it was actually going to New York. I wasn't coming back to South Africa. And that's when I was caught. I was basically set up. So the, so the mule thing has also been going on for a very, very long time. Yeah. So the mule thing also, yeah, to South America. I mean, in the old days, the guys would bring the coke. It was only in the probably late 80s, 90s, when China White started becoming very popular. I mean, heroin's always been a big thing in America and in Europe. What are, what so China white yeah. is heroin. Okay. It's pure heroin. Okay. But it's a different color. It's like a white color as opposed to the brown. The brownish, yeah. The brown sugar. Yeah. Um, and um, my supply of cocaine started exporting from Thailand to New York. And they'd asked me to come in with this enterprise with them. And um, eventually I agreed out of desperation because I was so hooked on coke, I would have done anything for money. Shawnee Krebs is my guest, a South African, yes, a South African doing great things. Yeah, so you're probably <laughs> sitting there and you're thinking, how come Aubrey's got this guy and he's calling him a South African doing great things? Stay listening. The number here to dial is 11 The story does take a positive turn, ladies and gentlemen. So stay with us uh, as I continue this conversation with Shawnee Krebs. And uh, perhaps you might remember those days. Yeah, uh, give me a call. O double one eight eight three O seven O two O two one double four six O five six seven. By the way, uh, Shani has written a book called Dragons and Butterflies. Why dragons and butterflies? So it's very symbolic of of my my life as an artist and as um, the the butterfly symbolizes the transition on the soul of the mind yeah. and my own transformation from drug addict, drug dealer to artist and 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 the other work that I get I do. it. Yeah. And, and then the dragon symbolizes more of my wild side. But the dragon has other symbolism in Eastern mythology sure. where, where it's, it's, it's a symbol of longevity, of wisdom. It's something magical, almost supernatural. Yeah. But in the prison, it, it symbolized the, the samurai, the warrior. Yes. And um, most of the assassins had this huge dragon tattooed on their back. Yes. If you look on the reverse side of, of the book. Yeah, so you've I've, got one. Yeah. I, I've got one, and I became known as Samurai Tanchad, right. which was the foreign warrior. All right. Let's, so, let's, before you get there. Yeah. By the way, if, if you resonate with this chapter of Shani's life, maybe you're there right now. Yeah, maybe you, you, you're a little bit wayward at the moment right now. You're finding yourself... Uh, on the wrong side of the law. You're perhaps doing certain things that aren't uh, on the right path at the moment, and you know it. And uh, Perhaps you just want to talk to somebody who's been there, you know, been there, done that, you know. 
Uh, give us a call. We'd love to hear from you on 11 It's a redemptive story of a guy who's been through it all. So you went, you went to prison. Why? Um, well, I was caught with 2.4 kilos of heroin. And, uh, in Thailand? In Thailand, caught at the airport, which carry, automatically carries the death penalty. Sure. So I was sentenced to death. But because I pleaded guilty, my sentence was commuted to life imprisonment, which is equivalent to 100 years. So I, initially I pleaded innocent, saying that I wasn't aware I was smuggling drugs. I was the impression I had forged foreign currency with me, mainly being dollars, thinking that I could still like maybe wangle your way out, out yeah, of it. Yeah. Yeah, you know? So in those days, I thought I was invincible, as yeah. I have most of my life. Yeah. But I realized that I wasn't. Yeah. And Thailand have taken a very like strict stance on on drug offenders. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah. So all my previous Do, life. Are, led are you able to tell me what led to your being caught? Yeah. So there are two possible scenarios. Um, often, what happens is the drug dealers themselves rat you out, and then uh, use you as a decoy and send other guys with. More a quantities, bigger, a bigger consignment, and yeah. on different flights. Yeah. So that's one scenario. Then the other scenario was that at the time America financed the war on drugs in Thailand, which they've been doing, I think, ever since the Vietnam War, yeah. when the heroin problem started. Um, so um, uh, the Thais, uh, the the police, they work with the drug dealers. I mean, it's one of the most corrupt countries in the world, besides South Africa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what the Americans said was, look, you've got to start showing us figures. You're not showing figures. Yes. Because the year I was caught, I think 10 other South Africans were caught and about 26 Americans, a whole bunch of Nigerians, Israelis, British, Australians. So there was a huge clampdown. So I think that's just what happened. The cops went to the drug dealers and said, listen, you've got to give us sacrifice names. a couple of people. Otherwise, yeah. we're, going to, we're going to bust you. And I think that's exactly what happened. I, I, and I want to go back to, 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 to how did you get in touch with the drug dealers to, to get to the point where you were desperate enough to be a mule? So I was actually selling drugs already and I was a drug dealer yeah. on the streets of Joburg. Yeah. And my supplier, which I mentioned earlier, started smuggling the heroin. Yeah. And he'd often asked me to do a trip. Yeah. Uh, you know, to come in with him, do a trip. And see where it takes us. Yeah. So so that's how I got involved. Yeah. yeah. It was my first trip overseas. Yeah. And, and what were the circumstances that brought you to the desperation to agree? Because I imagine you. Yeah, you, I was you, a, a heavy addict. Yeah. I mean, I, just before I went, I, I suffered two seizures Jeez. where I almost died. And actually, my family stepped in and said, look, you know, if you don't stop, um, we want nothing more to do with you. You know, so. As drug dealers, we, we're very selfish. We never consider the consequences, yeah. especially to our families, our loved ones. Yeah. You know, we, I don't care, you know. So. I've got lots of calls, Johnny. I've got okay. so many calls. Let's take people a call want to or talk, two. Talk to you. But uh, I, I think a lot of people are intrigued by the authenticity of your story. Thank you. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about your entrance into the Thai prison system yeah. and what happens there. Why you became the, the, the foreign ninja or whatever, yeah. the, the foreign <laughs> samurai, yeah? Yeah. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Penny is in. So you want to just put on your your ears there, please, uh, okay. Shani. Okay. Uh, Penny is in Santon. Hi, Penny. 
Hi there. Hi, Shani. Can you hear me? Yes. How are you doing? It's Penny speaking. Penny, my Facebook friend. Yeah. Yes. How are you doing? Hi, I, I, I'm fine. I just want to tell everyone that this man made a big mistake in his life, which he will live with for the rest of his dying days. Yes. To forgive is to love because without forgiveness we have no love. What are you and referring what are you referring to, Penny? I'm referring to Shani and the person that he is. Yeah. I think what, you, what you're referring Shani. to is maybe the lives that are destroyed during my drug dealing days. And and, and I, yeah, I, I did yes. get a lot of slack for, for that when I came home. A lot of people said I should have been executed and that I didn't deserve to be free. Um, so, yes, forgiveness is huge. And I am remorseful for what I did. And I always say that I was a deliverer of death. But I paid back. You know, I paid back year for year. I, I, I dealt drugs for 16 years and I did 18 years. So I, This I, is not... This this is exactly, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. this is exactly why I'm saying what I have to say. That you did your time, you did 18 years in a torturous prison. Um, if anyone reads your book, they will understand what you went through. Did, did, did you, Penny, uh, were you perhaps a victim of Shani's uh, more selfish uh, chapter of his life? I'm asking this because I'm saying, were you perhaps a victim of Shani's um, selfishness and and uh, uh, you know uh, drug dealing phase of his life? I'm not. I am not at all. I I understand what he did because I had a brother yes. who went through the same um, torturous. Uh, life that he went through and it all came through from a very, very bad, misunderstood childhood. Sure. You know, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure there's, 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 there's reasons. I, I suppose what I'm trying to get from your core, Penny, is, is, is it because you've read the book? Do, do you know um, the circumstances around Shani's life specifically that you're telling us about the, the virtues of, of forgiveness? Yes, I am absolutely talking about the virtues of forgiveness once you have read his book. Yes. But uh, the forgiveness should come from uh, people that have understood what sort of a life that he came from, how he eventually ended up with what he did, what he went through, and the man that he came out as. Yeah. Because any man that could come out of such a most incredible... Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. Okay. Uh, okay, Penny. I think, I think we get the, we get the, the gist. Uh, thanks very much for your call. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a little interested in Penny's core from your perspective, yeah. um, Shani. Uh, you, you know, she wants to tell us your life story. The reason why we have you here is yeah. for you to tell us your okay. life story. But I mean, I mean, did did you did you did you destroy people's lives? 
Uh, definitely, you know. So, I mean, I did supply them with drugs. So, um, I was instrumental in yeah. in fueling their uh, their addiction. Yeah, you know, I always said that um, if they didn't get it from me, well, they might, they could get it somewhere else. But I think that's the coward's way of looking at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, that, that rationalization yeah, process. So, yeah. so, so I could have maybe done good. Like today, you know, I'm 23 years drug free, and yeah. I, I, I mentor uh, recovering drug addicts. Um, drug addicts are reading my book. And it's giving them some hope because after 16 years of addiction, and if I could stop drugs in prison, where actually it was full of drugs, then anybody can do it, sure. you know? Sure. Let's talk to Tony, who's in Eldorado Park. Hi, Tony. Hey, Obi and Shami. Yeah, Hi. go for it, Tony. Uh, I have the, had the pleasure of meeting Shami some time ago. I showed him some of my paintings. Yeah. Um, Shami, to me, is a legend. Yeah. Um... Shani, uh, he's the only person, I think, in South Africa who is using the medium carbon powder. So, um, who's, Shani, who's doing what? Who's doing what? Sorry? Uh, it's, a, it's, a art, it's a technique in art which yes. is working with carbon powder. It's fine granules of charcoal. And I create almost photographic images. Wow. With, uh, okay. It's an ancient Chinese technique. Wow. Tony, sorry, where did we meet? Um, sorry? Have we met? Uh, yes, yes, Tony Fetchel. Oh, how's it? Cool, man. Yes. Um, I, I, um, I went to your, uh, I think uh, you were giving classes. That's correct. Uh, it, yeah, and uh, I was supposed to attend a few of those classes, but I never got around to do so. And I brought some paintings to your, uh, uh, your gallery yeah. uh, some time ago. At in Parkhurst. Uh, yes, that's yes, correct. Yeah. Shani, yeah. uh, I want to ask you about the um, the Chai Long. He introduced you to carbon powder. That's correct. Uh, is he still alive? So actually, I lost touch with him. You know, I don't know if you've read the book, but um, yes, I have. I yeah. Have. So he was only there for what about six months that I learned the the medium. So I am in touch with a few of the Thai guys who were in prison with me, but. I don't know. He just kind of disappeared. Okay. But uh, currently, you're the only person in South Africa who uses this technique, isn't it? Um, well, I have now passed it on to several other students. So there okay. might be about three more who are, have excelled and are doing really well. But um, um, I, I would like to, to be one of those, one yeah. of your students. Okay, great. Well, All right, Tony. So you stay, 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 stay uh, tuned. And um, uh, Sean is going to give his uh, his contact details in a few moments' time. All right. Yeah, I, do. I do have his contact. Oh, oh okay. So stuff. you'll be in touch right. with me. Right. We'll talk. Great stuff, Tony in Eldorado. Okay. Miles is in Nigel. Miles, how's it, man? Thanks, thanks, Ops and Shani. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, Shani. I don't know whether you remember many, many, many years ago. Whilst I was at the peak of my activism as a prisoner's rights activist, I'm now a veteran prisoner's rights. Yeah. activist. Your sister approached the organization I'm representing, the South African Prisoners Organization for Human Rights. Yes, sir. And she was all by herself, you know, trying to let us come, let you come back and serve your sentence in, in the country. Cor- that's correct. We were trying to get a, a prisoner transfer treaty in place. 
Yes, and I, I was still very young and, and anxious, and then we, we started trying to convince the Department of Foreign Affairs, the President's Office, the Minister of Correctional Services, and we all ran into a brick wall. Yeah. But apparently, as, as time worn off, um, your, your sister just disappeared. I could not get any contact from her. She could not come back to me. And I was just wondering why did she decided to disappear. And then one learned very long after that that she was advised by certain people that um, if 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 she wants to succeed in the project to get you back into the country, she must rather stay away from the organization I'm representing and from me particularly because I was then seen. And I'm still being seen as a rabble rouser and a confronter and a person <laughs> that is... <laughs> so. that, 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 that puts the rights of uh, prisoners in, in, in front yeah. and in, rather than also thinking of the victims of crime and criminals. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what transpired, but as you said, we were, we were running into a brick wall. Nobody was interested in helping us. Robert McBride was involved in my case, Aziza Pad, Aziza and uh, what's his name? Uh, Jackie Celebe, you know, uh, there was a prisoner transfer treaty draft, drafted up and he actually tore it up and threw it in a dustbin. And, and the South African government's attitude was that if we committed a crime in a foreign country, then we must face the consequences. But I think it also had something to do with my personal petition for a royal pardon. So we didn't want to cause too much waves, you know, but the government wasn't doing anything. <laughs> and we still don't have a prisoner transfer treaty in place. And there are still today South Africans in foreign prisons in Thailand and all over the world. I think the, the population of that is about for anything between six to 900 uh, for, uh, South Africans. Miles, so, I mean, maybe we must hook up. Uh, I yeah, think so. We yes. must hook up. Definitely. And the organization I'm representing is still alive and it's kicking us. I'm still around and I have, in the meantime, uh, been injected with what is called socialist revolutionary. <laughs> well, Majigas Pegan, thank you very much. Much appreciated. We don't get locked up together. So you got you got you got imprisoned. You yeah. got caught. You were you were given a life sentence. In fact, you were supposed to be given death sentence. Yeah. You stayed in prison for eighteen years. Yeah. So life was equivalent to a hundred years. Yeah. But but you stayed there for eighteen years. Eighteen years ain't no joke, I suppose. Yeah, no, no, it's just a long give me a, a just give me a picture of what the kind of experience was like in a Thai prison. I mean, we've seen movies, you know. I mean, yeah. and they can really dramatize a so, Thai prison. But yeah. uh, give me a sense. Well, it's no, it's it's actually that's the reality. Yeah. So I was in five different prisons. So the first one was called Bombard. I was there for a couple of months. That was probably the hardest, and because. Um, you know, it's, it's that those first few days and, and months are, are the worst because you're in a foreign country, you don't speak the language, it's a different culture, and it's a shock to the system. And um, conditions are extremely primitive. You know, there's no bedding or anything like that. There's no clean water. Um, it's open sewerage systems. And suddenly you're thrown into a prison population and you're in a cell with 50 guards and you're almost sleeping on top of each other. I mean, it was so overcrowded that you had to sleep in, in, in sessions. You know, some guards would stand around, some sit, others sleep. So it's, it's really a shock. Um, it's beyond human comprehension. I can't actually describe it to you. I think in the book I tried as much as I can, but unless you've been there, it's very well, difficult. I, I remember to somebody saying to me that uh, our prisoners are like, our prisons <coughs> are like hotels compared to some of those prisons there. 
Yeah, you know, so I wouldn't go as far as saying that because prison's prison. It doesn't yeah. matter in which country. Obviously, yeah. some of the European Union prisons are a lot more luxurious. Yeah. I mean, the food was shocking. It's virtually inedible. So even South Africa, I've never been in a South African prison. I've visited the prisons. I've been back. I've been in Pretoria Central. Yeah. I was there as a guest. So it was also quite scary going back there and, you know, going through the motions and, and, and the, the doors. I think the thing that freaked me out the most was all the, all, all these keys and, and, and doors opening all the time, you know, during the night and when you're locked up and spending 15 hours a day with with the whole group of guys was like quite uh, quite nightmarish. And there's just no privacy and it's really tough, you know, but you need to adjust. So yeah. it's either do or die kind of thing. You did adjust. I mean, you, you did adjust ultimately. You you be became a bit of a legend in there. You even got your dragon tattoo, which is yeah. quite a, a status thing, I'm told, at, yeah. at the Thai prisons. You became known as a samurai. Talk to me about the process that led you there. So the thing is, from the, the onset, uh, I, I, I said to myself while I was in the in the police cells, that um, I'm going to stand up for what I believe is right. Um, I'm never going to compromise my integrity, and there's no ways anybody's going to rape me. And I stood by those principles throughout. But I think what also got me my status was I had to fight, obviously, for it. So I had a few fights, uh, one extremely violent one. And the fact that I brought about changes in the prison, I got telephones in, I got clean water in, alleviated the overcrowding. So human rights violations in Thai prisons are extremely rampant. And that was also a huge shock to my system. No, no problem. Have, you, have a swig of water. My my guest is, is Shani Krebs, and uh, I'm find, finding his story both intriguing and fascinating. Um, and yes, you'll understand why I have invited him as a South African doing great things. Yes, you're listening to the story of a very, 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 very dark past. Um, and, um, and just stay tuned, just stay tuned. Yeah. So you, you were, you were in the prison, you were involved yeah. in, and, and you facilitated the changing of some of the conditions there, made them a little yeah. bit better. How did you do that? So I started writing petitions. Okay. And one of the things, the first time I started writing a petition was in, I was arrested in 1994, in 1996, the king was going to celebrate his 50th anniversary. To oh, the there's throne. a king there? Yeah, they have a king. Okay. <laughs> he died, but now his son's the king. Yeah. But um, anyway, and he's very well respected, and he, he had a lot of compassion for prisoners. Yeah. And whenever there was a royal occasion, he would give prisoners clemency. We used to call it an amnesty. Yeah. But um, at this time, a new government came into power, and they took a very strong stance on drug offenders and said we weren't going to be included in the amnesty. And that's when I started writing letters to almost every single human rights organization in the world. I wrote to everybody. I mean, I wrote to the Pope. I wrote to Bill Clinton. I wrote to the Queen. Um, and just asking them, firstly, to put pressure on the trial government to abolish the death penalty. Secondly, did you write to your own government, South African government? We did write, yeah. I actually wrote to de Klerk. <laughs> I wrote to oh, was it de Klerk at the time? Yeah. Okay, yeah? Yeah, he was, well, he was, he was out already because okay. I was arrested one day before the first democratic election in South Africa. <laughs> we, wrote, <laughs> we, we wrote to Bishop Tutu. <laughs> <laughs> did, did they ever re respond? I think a lot of people did because um, when, the, when, when the occasion came up, we did get the amnesty. Drug yeah. offenders were included. Okay. I mean, if I wouldn't have done what I did then, I probably wouldn't be sitting here with you. Yeah. And my sentence went from 100 years to 40 after being there for two years. 
So that was like a huge miracle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so. and, 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 and was that the reason why you started to gain favor amongst the prisoners? So, so the thing was that um, the Thais, I mean, Thailand's an authoritarian state. They have so much respect for authority that if a guard comes past, they go on their hands and knees and they why. It's called whying. Yeah. And they why him. And, Thais, and they beat the Thais. So... Ties didn't have a, they didn't ever say. And here I come in. I'm a, I'm a foreigner, and I'm telling them, "Hey, man, you got rights. We got to fight for this thing." Yeah. And they were really scared to put their names on on the, petition. the petitions. Yeah. And then some started coming forward, and especially like some of the more educated ties who like the political prisoners who were on death row, and started getting guys to sign. Anyway, so. The fact that I was fighting for everybody's rights, not just foreigners. Foreigners were a minority. Yeah. I mean, I could have just fought for the foreigners, but we wouldn't got anywhere. I needed yeah. to get the tires on my side. Yeah. And that's what made the difference. I got a lot of respect from that, but also through fighting, through honor. You know, prison, the rules are very different. Talk to me. <laughs> Talk to yeah, me. So it's all about honor. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, you can imagine you 900 prisoners on two and a half acres of ground. You see the same people every day. So you can't just screw somebody over and think you're going to get away with it. Yeah. You actually become ostracized. Yeah. And if you're a thief or you have problems or, and you, you're not honorable, uh, you push the side. So there's some very clear codes of how you live behavior. in a prison and behavior. How did you become a, 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 a samurai? At which point? What, did ha what happened that you became and you got your, your, your colors, as it were? You got your dragon on so, your back. So I had a few fights along the way. And then in 1999, I had quite a violent fight with one of the gangs. Yeah. And I took out their leader and I was then thrown into solitary confinement. And then while I was in solitary, um, we were probably about 90 guys locked up 24 hours. And you said took out, you killed him? Well, not, no, no, no. But I mean, took him out. Like, okay, okay. You know, knocked him out kind sure. of thing. But uh, like. I can see a movie here, <laughs> yeah, dude. Yeah. yeah. And um, anyway, even in solitary then, uh, but now I'd had a reputation for being a fighter, being hot-tempered. Um, I never backed down from an argument. I was extremely aggressive. Yeah. You know, so, um, and then when I was in solitary, I actually took control of the building. Um, I had a Thai girlfriend, and uh, one of the things that really got to me was the, the also the poverty with, with the Thai prisoners. Some of them didn't have soap, they didn't have tobacco. I mean, so I had like quite a bit of money coming in from my family, and by this stage, I was already drawing uh, portraits of people all over the world. And um, with the money that I got, I would buy like soap and tobacco and just give it to the guys, you know, and uh, started controlling things there. So I also uh, sponsored the football teams, coached the football. So I became quite well known amongst the guys, you know. It's like well, but was, was, this, was, was this manipulative stuff or was it coming from a very genuine place? No, it was coming from a good place, yeah. you know. But I mean, I also knew how to manipulate a certain sure. situation. Yeah. You had to, you know. So I mean, I did grow up on the streets, which sure. uh, for me, I always said prison was no different to the streets of yeah. Joburg. It was just a little bit more intensified. You know, so you come was, back was in 2012 after a whole process, and you are in a very new country. Yeah, it was. It was like coming to another country. It was beautiful and it was exciting and. Uh, you know, uh, I felt like a stranger here. Things had changed, but the one thing that really struck out for me was the social integration. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I believe South Africa is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And, and you started getting involved in art, 
teaching young kids? Talk to me about that book. So um, my first uh, my, my, my first purpose was to, to write my book. So I started writing my book in the same time, organizing art exhibitions. I tried to get my work into galleries. Nobody wanted to touch me, so I thought one day I'll open my own gallery. So I managed to get a gallery about four years ago in Kilani. So it all started there where I broke into the art market and started selling paintings locally and internationally and um, also started teaching. Um, also, what do you teach? So I teach basic uh, drawing and right. portraiture. Yeah. And um, then eventually I moved to Parkhurst where I really started teaching and also I've done projects in like Dipslut. We did a we did a art, uh, what's the name of their project? It was last year during the holidays where we took 90 kids and taught them to paint over wow. three days. So that was a great experience. Yeah. And uh, I teach privately as well, so people come to the gallery. Do you feel like a redeemed individual? Do you feel like you are a different person? I'm very different yeah. uh, to what I was before I went into prison. Listen, I'm no angel, make no mistake. I, I, I have my issues. You know, it's been very hard to integrate. I have yeah. anger issues. Yeah. Um, I've had problems with my family. Um, I didn't come out a normal person, yeah. although I did go through this whole process of rediscovering who I am yeah. and developing my art artistic skills. So I knew, it, I knew that it would take time for me to get out. And the main thing was for me never to lose a moment and to use my time constructively in prison and to change, you know, I, I needed to change. I know that you do a lot of work with young kids and, and, yeah. and, and people that you, you, you're teaching some of the principles of life almost through your art and so yeah, forth. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and I know you've got this uh, Facebook uh, platform called Africa Speaks. That's right. What are you doing with that? What's that all about? So, so what we're trying to create is goodwill amongst all cultures, you know, and, and also getting to speak to the normal person on the street. I do interviews with them. You know, to find out. Um, Somebody said to me, it's almost therapeutic the work that you do because it comes from a non-judgmental place. You speak to the beggar as yeah. respectfully as you speak to the guy who is a business yeah. person. And uh, uh, somebody was saying to me that uh, what what Shani is able to do is that he is able to make people rediscover their humanness, their humanity, yeah. by being unjudgmental in the way that he carries these conversations out. Yeah, because, I mean, they've just got a bad deal, you know. I mean, they're also humans. We're all humans. We're all, yeah. we're, we're all alike, you know. And, and when you get down and you listen to their stories, you know, it really touches a chord with me and, and their struggles and challenges and, and, and their hopes. Everybody wants a better future yeah. for themselves, you know. So, Shoni, yeah. I've run out of time, but I, I, I think this is such an important conversation. How do uh, people get in touch with you? How do people... Uh, talk to you and, and get in touch with you, get to know your art and so forth? So I am on Facebook yeah. under Shani Zorkrams yeah. and we also run the page called Africa Speaks. Um, I'm happy to give out my email address sure, which is shanikrebs at hotmail.com it's S-H-A-N-I-K-R-E-B-S or just Google 18 years in a Bangkok prison and you'll find me. Dragons and Butterflies is the book's uh, title, and uh, I really, really recommend it. I've just started reading a few pages of it, but it is very, very honest, very, very authentic. And I think that's why Shani um, resonates with people that have gone through real hardship. Not, not that others don't go through real hardship, but I think that your experiences um, uh, cut through the crap, as it were, 
and yeah. you are able to connect with people. I want to thank you very much for the great work that you're doing, Shani. Thank you. Thank uh, and uh, and it really makes me proud to say that you're a South African doing great things. I'm not necessarily saying yeah. that the bad things that you've done were uh, in any way laudable, yeah. but I think that the the fact that you've recognized them and you've is absolutely wonderful. And thank you very much for sharing your story with us. How do people get your book? So it's available online on an ebook. Otherwise, you can get it from me. Exclusive books should have it. So, yeah. so if they don't, they will order it for you. And uh, uh, the the Facebook um, initiative. Tell tell me about that and how to get to it. So so I'm on my personal page. Um, a lot of stuff that I do is on there, which is Shani's or Krebs. Uh, and then there's Africa Speaks. You can just join the page and follow what we're doing. If anybody, we what we'd like to see is more people coming forward to be interviewed, to hear their story, to hear their challenges and their hopes and dreams for the future of South Africa. Just talking to somebody can be so powerful, huh? Eh? <laughs> Thanks.